Good morning. Um, my name is Quincy McConathy, and I am an intern here this summer at Boone United Methodist Church. Laura is my supervisor. I've just recently completed my first year at Duke Divinity School, and I'll be starting my second year come the fall. So would you all pray with me? God, thank you so much for bringing us all here together this morning. Thank you for your word that edifies us and brings us closer to you and brings us closer to each other. I pray, Lord, that this sermon would bring us to repentance. Please convict our hearts of, of ways that we need to turn back to you. And Lord, equip us with the tools that we need to discern between true and false teaching. We love you so much, and we pray that you would give us grace to love you well and to love others well. Let the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart be pleasing to you. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So there are some things that are not very hard to tell if they are good teaching or bad teaching. So, for example, if someone tells you, if you give this much money to this ministry, God is going to bless you with all this money or this brand new house or maybe um, someone, or maybe like you think, Someone made me mad, so that gives me permission to hurt them. I think any pastor in the world would be like, that's bad. <laughs> Don't believe that. That's false teaching. Um, or maybe good teaching would be like, if you give to this person in need, um, that would be really pleasing to God. Those kinds of things are really obvious for us to discern. But it's the things that if we are really honest with ourselves and we take a really hard look at it, we're like, I don't know. <laughs> I could see it this way, but I could also see it this way. Um, so for example, like, is it wrong to have a lot of money? Is it wrong to go to war? Um, those things I'm not gonna answer. <laughs> but I do this morning want to try to attempt to equip us with some tools that can try to help us determine between true and false teaching. So um, let's go to our scripture passage this morning in Revelation chapter 2 verses 12 through 29. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open them up because this is a really long passage and it's really complicated, so maybe it would help if you had it in front of you. The message to Pergamum. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you are living, where Satan's throne is. Yet you are holding fast to my name, and you did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you, where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the people of Israel, so that they would eat food sacrificed to idols and practice fornication. So you also have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent then. If not, I will come to you soon and make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give a white stone, and on the white stone is written a new name that no one knows except the one who receives it. 
And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, these are the words of the son of God who has, a, who has eyes like flames of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, faith, service, and patient endurance. I know that your last works are greater than your first, but I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet and is teaching and beguiling my servants to practice fornication and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her fornication. Beware, I am throwing her on a bed, and those who commit adultery with her, I am throwing into great distress, unless they repent of her doings. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am the one who searches hearts and minds. And I will give to each of you as your works deserve. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. To everyone who conquers and continues to do my works to the end, I will give authority over the nations to rule them with an iron rod as when clay pots are shattered. Even as I also received authority from my father, to the one who conquers, I will also give the morning star. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. This is the word of God for the people of God. So when I told my friend that I was reading from Revelation chapter 2 and that this was my first sermon ever, they were like, that sounds like hazing. <laughs> so just keep that in mind as I'm giving this sermon. Um, so I don't know if you guys know this, but I'm actually living with the McLean family, with Jeff and Carrie McLean. Um, and one night, uh, Carrie's mom, it was her birthday, so they all wanted to go out to dinner. And so I was in charge of watching Anne, um, Emma, and James. James is two, Emma's eight, and Anne is six. So it's getting to be about the time when they told me that it was be James' bedtime. And James is like up playing and stuff and we're trying to watch Tangled. And um, I'm like, James, we can go to bed now or you can come relax and sit next to me until the movie's over. And James goes. And I looked at him and I was like, can he hear me? Or like, is he just ignoring me? Like, does he understand what I'm saying? And Emma was like, James, do you want to go to bed or do you want to sit by Quincy? And he was like, I'll come sit by Quincy. And so he came and sat next to me. But like, the reason why he listened to Emma is because that's his sister. He knows Emma. He knows that Emma loves him with all her heart. He knows that Emma would never lead him astray and never ask him to do something that um, would be bad for him or would be harmful for him. But he doesn't know me. James, being a man of wisdom, does not know my character. He doesn't know what my life has been like, and so he didn't listen to me. And so my point in saying that is sometimes we can use that discernment when we're trying to figure out what is true and false. What are the, do we know the people that are teaching us? Do we know their lives? Can we see fruit in their lives? Do we feel the Holy Spirit when we come into their presence? And maybe, maybe then when we know who we feel that we can trust, 
those are the people that we can have conversations with and, and that can be a tool that we use to help bring us to truth, to determine what is true teaching. Um, and that's not the only tool we have. We have another tool and it's called the Wesleyan Quadrilateral. As Methodists, I'm so grateful that we have this. So my professor in divinity school explained it to us as like a stool. So the, the part where you sit on, that's scripture. That's what's holding you up. But we also have the three legs of the stool, which is tradition, reason, and experience. So scripture, what does the Bible actually say about God and, what, and who God is? And then you have, uh, tra- then you, yeah, so then you have tradition, which is what, do the, what does our heritage say? What does our Christian heritage say? What do, this, what do the lives of the saints tell us about the truth of God? And then we have our reason. God gave us a brain. God gave us thoughts. And we can actually think and reason through something and think, like, is this something that is, is of God or not? And then we have our experience, which is in my own personal relationship with God and the ways that I see God moving in, in the world around me, what can I glean from what is true and false. So those are all tools that we have to help us determine true and false teaching. Um, so let's go back to the text before us, which is Revelation 2, um, to the churches of Pergamum and Thyatira. There's a lot happening <laughs> in this passage. Um, it can seem totally confusing and cryptic at times, as we can tell from our whole experience going through the churches in Revelation. Um, But one thing that helps me when I think about the book of Revelation is the word apocalypse. It doesn't mean the end of the world or some zombie thing. It means uh, an uncovering. That's what the word apocalypse means in, in the Greek. It's an uncovering. It's a revealing. So that is what Revelation is. It's an uncovering. um, And in this case, it's an uncovering that the churches in Pergamum and Thyatira Um, they look too much like the world around them. They don't look like the particular people that God set them apart to be. So this has been the message of the prophets since Noah. Samuel, Elijah, Elisha, all these prophets, they say, repent, turn back to God. If you do, God will reward you. God will bless you with an eternal blessing. But if you don't, there's going to be punishment. There's going to be judgment. So let's be clear, Pergamum and Thyatira are not bad churches. They're not even close to being bad churches. They're doing a lot of things right. In fact, there are six things that, they are, that this scripture tells us that they are doing right. They're holding fast to the name of Jesus. They're not denying their faith in Jesus, even amidst persecution. Even when their friend Antipas is being killed, they're still not denying their faith in Jesus. It says they have, they're full of faith, patience, service, and love. Those are the things that they're just killing it at. But there are two things that the letters uncover about the ways that they're falling short. They're eating food sacrificed to idols, and they're practicing sexual immorality. So let's take a closer look about what John means when he says food sacrificed to idols. So Pergamum and Thyatira, they're on the Roman road. And they're the seat of Roman administration in the Roman Empire in the Asian province. So this is a city full of culture and business. And so back in that day, when you receive success, when your family's healthy, 
when everything's going your way, when your businesses are making lots of money, you give thanks to the gods of the Pantheon. That is the Roman way. The gods of the Pantheon are what you give praise for, for this awesome Roman world that you see around you. And so one way that Rome kept people um, understanding who's in charge is they would make them sacrifice food to idols, to the Roman gods of the Pantheon. So what John is saying here is do not show that you are complicit with the world around you. You cannot have both. You can be a Christian and be in a Christian community, or you can be a complete complicit Roman citizen, but you cannot have your cake and eat it too. Um, so it's a little confusing though, because in 1 Corinthians chapter eight, in Paul's letters to the church in Corinth, um, there's like a little different message. Paul seems to be saying you can eat food sacrificed to idols, but if it causes someone to stumble, you probably shouldn't. So it's confusing here that we have seemingly two contradicting, contradictory messages. So Paul's saying like, you know, maybe not do it if you think a weaker Christian is gonna judge you for it and it's gonna cause them to be upset, maybe not do it. But then John is like, do not eat food sacrificed to idols. So what do we do with that? So just to put in perspective, what I mean by food sacrifice to idols, I think of an example that helps me to put it in perspective. Is there anything wrong with the color blue? No, obviously not. But around here, the shade of blue you wear says a lot about what kingdom you're complicit with. And, uh, and who's, you know, the kingdom of God or not the kingdom of God, you know? Um, so it's not that there's anything actually wrong with food sacrifice to idols, but when you do that, what does it show about your life? You know, and, and you can't wear Duke and UNC colors or symbols. There you go. My friend Maggie, who's an intern at um, Faithbridge, she doesn't know anything about basketball, and she's not even from around here. So she's actually doing a dual program at UNC and Duke, and she was like, I'm so excited, I'll just wear both, you know? And they were like, no, <laughs> you gotta pick a theme, either Duke or UNC, and that's what John is trying to say here. And the reason why Paul and John are having, it seems like they're saying two different things, I think we can pull in the Wesleyan quadrilateral here. What is the circumstance that they're in? They're using their reason, they're using their judgment based on their experience, and they're saying, you know, this might be okay sometimes, but right now it's not okay. And I think like that's something that we can take away from this passage is like, it's not saying that everything that you do that shows that your allegiance to one thing or another is bad, but sometimes we have to use our discernment. Sometimes it's not okay to do something that would be okay in another situation. Um, so let's go back to the text in Revelation. Um, so if we move on to the second accusation against the church, which is um, that they're being um, unfaithful, that they're being unfaithful to God through sexual immorality. 
when I think about the so-so called sin of Jezebel, as it's represented in the church today, I lament. Throughout history, many women have been called Jezebel as an insult, as if their womanhood meant ungodliness. The metaphor of Jezebel has been used as a weapon to demonize and silence stories of so many women. According to this text, however, the sin of Jezebel is spiritual adultery. She's been convincing church members to listen to false teachings and and including encourage them to worship the Roman gods of the pantheon. So um, let's turn back to Balak and Balaam for a minute. Those are two other characters that are told in the story in Revelation 2. Um, I've heard you guys have studied about Balaam and Balak with your donkey tales in the children's choir. Um, So maybe just a, a short recap. So there are stories of Balaam and Balak, and their their whole goal is to trip up the children of Israel and getting them to worship idols, um, getting them to do things that aren't pleasing to God as they're traveling in the wilderness. Um, But there's another story of Balaam, and we're all familiar with it in Numbers 22. So Balaam is, is out, and he's going to curse the children of Israel. And as he's riding on his donkey, the donkey just stops. And he won't go any farther. And so Balaam starts beating the donkey, and like, he's so frustrated, the donkey's not going anywhere. And then finally, the donkey actually speaks up and is like, what have I ever done to you? Stop hitting me. Like, what, what is the point? What are you doing right now? And Balaam is so scared that he says, if I had my sword, I would kill you right now. And then an angel of the Lord appears and says, if it weren't for this donkey stopping, I would have killed you myself. Do not go this way. Turn around and go bless the people of God. Do not curse them. And as Balaam had set out to curse the children of Israel, but when he goes back, He ends up blessing God seven times with some of the most beautiful prayers that I've ever read in scripture. So Balaam was sent to preach one message, but he ended up preaching another. He thought he was right in his teaching, and he ended up going in the opposite direction. And that's just something that I think about, that I take comfort in, is sometimes when we're struggling with discernment and like what is good, what is true and false, I take comfort in knowing that if I start to change my mind, maybe I'm listening to God's voice after all. Maybe I shouldn't panic. Like maybe I should just see what happens. Like maybe God is the one that's leading me elsewhere and maybe it's gonna lead to greater praise of God. And another beautiful thing about the story of Balaam is that God gives Balaam a second chance. And I find such comfort in that. Even if I'm heading in the wrong wrong direction, God is going to send an actual talking donkey to turn me back around and keep me from danger. And there's an angel of the Lord that is going to guide me back. I find such comfort in that and knowing that my praise will be seven times better than it was before, even when I was going in the wrong direction. And so a lot of times we say, you know, if God can use a donkey, like God can use me. 
But like maybe we should say, if God can use someone like Balaam, God can use me. That was sent out to curse God, but ended up blessing God. So in what ways do we eat food sacrificed to idols? What things do we participate in or what symbols do we display in our lives that reveal what kingdom that we're really a part of? These things might not be bad in and of themselves, but show where our allegiances really lie at the end of the day. Is it in Christ or another power in your life? And I take comfort knowing that I cannot discern every single thing. Even though it's very good work to discern between good and bad teaching or true and false teaching, at the end of the day, I don't think that each one of us is gonna figure out every single thing. And I take great comfort in that, especially in the parts of this text where it says that Jesus has the double-edged sword and Jesus has the eyes that are, that are full of flames and can search the hearts and minds. I don't have the flaming sword or the flaming eyes. Like, I don't have the power to, to make every single judgment call or to search every single person's intention or heart or um, their thought process and coming to where they've been. And so I don't know if you've guys seen the movie um, Avengers. No? So um, Thor is the ruler of Asgard. And in the movie, um, the only person that can rule Asgard is whoever can pick up the hammer. And so only Thor is worthy enough to hold the hammer, so only he can rule Asgard. And so there's all these other Avengers, there's all these Marvel superheroes, and they, they save the world, they like save women in distress, they save babies falling off bridges, like they do all these amazing things. You got Spider-Man, Captain America, um, the Hulk, all these awesome superheroes, but none of them can pick up the hammer. Only Thor can pick it up because only Thor is valiant enough and noble enough to pick up the, to pick up the hammer. So I think about that when I think about the two-edged sword. I find comfort in knowing that even though I'm doing my best to follow Jesus, I'm doing my best to figure out what is true and right, I'm doing my best to help bring others along with me in my, in my path. But at the end of the day, only Jesus can hold the double-edged sword, that is judgment. Because only Jesus has a good enough heart, is pure enough, is loving enough, is well-intentioned enough to hold that sword. And I think sometimes we really wanna pick it up and we really wanna judge and we really wanna do that. But when we pick it up, we're violent with it. We hurt people, we cut people down. But when Jesus picks it up, he saves the world. And Jesus says, if you conquer, you will have everything. But what does Jesus mean by conquer? He doesn't mean like, oh, you're gonna be better than everyone else, or you're gonna have been the one that is the best. Like you've been the best Christian. That's not at all what, what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying, if you are the most loving, if you are the most patient, if you are the most serving, if you are the most 
having faith in me, even when you don't understand, even when you're confused, if you do all those to as best you can, you're gonna receive everything that I have for you. Everything in my Father's house will be yours. And I find such comfort in that. And then at the end of this passage, it says, hold on to what you have until I come. And so in all these different theological discussions that we're having, you may not have figured out every single thing, but what you do know is what God is praising you about is your love, your faith, your service, and your patience. That's what you can hold on to until, until you hear otherwise. That is what you can know for sure. And so another thing it talks about is the hidden manna. That's another gift that we're gonna, that we receive every, like if we conquer till the end. And when I think about us receiving the hidden manna, I think about our communion table. And every time we come to the communion table, we all come together, all of us Jezebels and Balaams and whoever else, and we're gonna receive a white stone with a new name on it. And for people who have been called Jezebel and Balaam and whoever else, that's good news. That's good news for me. That's good news for all of us. So we're all gonna receive a new name and it's gonna be on a white stone. And every time we come to this communion table, we think about that and we remember it as we taste the hidden manna and we think about the future that we have to look forward to. So that's what I leave you with today. And that's the good news. That through the blood of Jesus, that he has shed for us in the resurrection of our King, there is hope for all, even in our times of confusion when we are not sure what's true and false. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you so much for our time this morning. I pray that you would help us to think of ways that we can do more work when we're trying to figure out what is true and false and to be most glorifying to you. Lord, also give us comfort in knowing that you alone hold the truth and are good in every way. We love you and we worship you because you are so good. Help us to be more like you. Give us grace to be more like you. It's in your holy and precious name I pray. Amen.